Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or actually around the world too. Uh, This is Judge Jim Gray on another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, always bringing in interesting, diverse guests, uh, and today is certainly no exception. Uh, I couldn't come between them, so we have a husband and wife, uh, Mickey Norris and Chris Conrad, longtime friends and, and colleagues with regard to our attempts to change away from our nation's failed policy of drug prohibition. Uh, they are troopers. They have been involved in this uh, longer than I have, actually, but uh, Uh, I started in 1992. I think they started when they were six or seven years old, but uh, one way or the other. (laughs) We we met them. Uh, They have just formed an American Hemp Council. Uh, They've been involved with Family Council on Drug uh, Awareness. So they're they're into these various things. Uh, I've read a book that they've written uh, called uh, Shattered Lives, which is just I don't hate to say this, a shattering experience to look at pictures of people and they tell their their stories and how drug prohibition laws have have caught them and ruined their lives for so many people. These folks are dedicated. They're good people. And Mickey Norris, welcome. Chris Conrad, welcome. Thank you for being with us here on All Rise. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourselves. We'll start with Mickey, uh, girls first and all that. But uh, how did you... Tell us about your background, Mickey, your schooling, past activities, and actually how you met this man of yours. Okay. Well, I'm surprised I I got into this field, however, not that surprised, because I was raised with uh, a sense of social justice and and caring about civil rights for everybody and equality. I went to UCLA, was a sociology major, became a a teacher. I got a master's degree in uh, education, and I started out working with special ed kids, with uh, with hearing-impaired kids, and then I went into adult education, teaching English as a second language to immigrants, and I... um, Got into this, I I always had a political consciousness. I was raised in a Jewish family not that long after the Holocaust with a sense that uh, it was wrong to be uh, scapegoating people and rounding them up and putting them in prisons for for no reason. And uh, we, we knew that everybody deserved the same rights as everybody else, and so... Um, I grew up with that kind of sense, and then I became a a little bit of a political activist in college, you know, protesting against the Vietnam War, because I was concerned about human rights and and the way that we treated people in other countries, and then I got involved with uh, the committee, uh, wait, CSPES, the Committee in Solidarity with the people of El Salvador when I learned about how we were... uh, supporting 
paramilitary and cracking down on the people, and and I felt like uh, the U.S. was inter- intervening in these other countries in a way uh, that was against the people and not supporting any kind of civil rights thing. But then I, I went to a uh, protest uh, after Reagan became president. Uh, he was trying to break up the, the unions and uh, the air traffic controllers union. And I was living in L.A. at the time, and uh, I had felt compelled to stand up and protest against what Reagan was doing on Solidarity Day in 1981 in MacArthur Park. And behind me was sitting this uh, cute young man who I kept looking at each other. And, and afterwards, uh, he came up to me and handed me a newspaper because he was editing this uh, this uh, community newspaper because he was an activist as well. He had come with the Great Panthers to the to the protest. He was a young guy there, but. Uh, anyway, we, we met there, and then we ended up meeting again at another protest against uh, the Diablo Canyon nuclear uh, energy uh, plant, and then we made a date. And then, uh, you know, we joined forces, fell in love and joined forces, And uh, but we didn't get involved in this issue until the, the late 80s, and I'm sure Chris will want to tell you. How he got involved with that, Chris. Take it. From, take it from there. Uh, uh, yeah. who, who winked? Who winked? Uh, Chris. Who, anyway, who winked so I, first? Yeah, did you I, wink I, at Mickey, or did Mickey wink at you first? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I had my eye at her, but she had to look over her shoulder to see me because I was behind her. So <laughs> I might have been doing more of the winking, but I couldn't have. It wouldn't have worked if she hadn't looked at me once in a while. <laughs> But anyway, uh, you know, I, I was raised with a Catholic family, so we were really excited when John Kennedy was running for president, like the first Catholic. Of course, I was just a little tyke at that time, but I do remember the excitement. And uh, not too much longer after Kennedy was assassinated, we had two things that happened. Uh, there were four little girls killed in a church bombing, and there were uh, three civil rights workers who were killed, murdered, and buried in a dam. Uh, and so that was when the Ku Klux Klan was active. I was in uh, the South a little bit, in Maryland, so I'm not the deep South. But uh, so some a friend of mine at, at grade school, we decided to form a group called the Anti Ku Klux Klan. That was one of my first political activism. We would make uh, flyers and civil rights information and anti Klan information and go to church and pass it out. We made newsletters and pass it around school and stuff. Uh, and and then uh, from there, I went to actually I went to the seminary. Uh, Dr. Gray, I mean, Judge Gray. I thought I was going to uh, become a Catholic priest, but then uh, in the course of it, I stood. Uh, we studied the history of the church, and I learned about the Inquisition. And at that point, I didn't feel like I could convert anyone to that as a, uh, <laughs> what do you call it, uh, no mistakes, a religion that never makes a mistake. Because <laughs> that looked like a very big mistake to me. And uh, and then uh, protesting against the Vietnam War and so forth. I was I was really involved with a lot of organizations, actually in Long Beach, California, throughout the 1970s, the uh, anti-nuclear, the pro-housing uh, rights and things like that. And, you know, uh, the cannabis issue really seemed like a peripheral issue to me. I mean, it's just something I, I, I smoke cannabis. My friends smoke marijuana. Nobody seemed to be getting in trouble for it. It didn't seem like a big deal. Uh, and so it didn't seem like an important issue to me. Um, and and that really remained the case until 1988. Uh, I was working on a, the insurance reform initiative, Prop 103 in 88. 
And uh, that was here in California. That was an insurance reform initiative. And everybody said, that's impossible. You'll never pass that initiative to, cr- to bring the rain in the insurance companies. And so after we passed it, we were out in the parking lot smoking a joint. And I said to my friends, it's like, well, you know, why are we out in the parking lot? We should have our rights for marijuana, too. You know, let's do something about legalizing marijuana. They said that was impossible. You know, and everybody said, well, you're, you're, you've lost it, man. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. going to happen. Uh, and so in the course of this rather heated conversation, I said, I bet I can make a plan, and I bet I can change these laws. And so uh, from that, I, I went home and uh, started l- looking into the cannabis issue. And I read all this really information about about cannabis. Uh, you know, I uh, was quite impressed with what I was learning. I thought I was making a lot of progress. And then over uh, Thanksgiving dinner that year, 88, my uh, niece came into the room after we, my, her dad and me had smoked a joint. And, uh, you know, and this was kind of a normal, traditional thing. Uh, you know, whenever we got together, we'd smoke joints and so forth. And, uh, and In the garage. In the garage. But, you know, <laughs> but it was no big deal. I mean, you know, they knew we were, you know, I mean, there was no secret in the family that I was a pot smoker, believe me. Uh, but in any case, it was the first time she had, she had a really weird attitude towards me. And so I said, well, what's, what's going with you? And she said, you know, that she had just been to the D.A.R.E. program. And, uh, you know, they had told her all this stuff about cannabis, which then I promptly disavowed her of what they had told her. But uh, I, you know, she said to me, well, if marijuana is not really dangerous and, and it's not really bad, then why did they make it illegal in the first place? And so I, I said to her the comment that has that really changed my life. I said, you know, I think I know the answer to that because I've been reading all this stuff. But I said, but let me look into it a little further before I get back to you. And so what I did then is I went back and I looked at the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act hearings. And, uh, and that's when I found out that the entire discussion was about hemp. The only, the only marijuana was when the federal government came in and said, oh, marijuana is a big problem. And then some people said, well, it's not a problem on the farms and so forth. And then there was about how it was going to suppress the hemp industry from then on. And so Dr. Woodford at that hearing, he said, well, uh, you know, the problem is that the AMA is opposing this bill. And uh, the, one of the reasons we're opposing it is that you didn't, you're using the wrong word. Hemp, marijuana is a made-up word, they said, that the real English word is hemp, and the, uh, uh, the scientific word is cannabis, and that's why nobody knew what you were doing until it was too late. And I'm looking at all these farmers they didn't know about. It. They didn't know about it because they were growing hemp, and they had no idea. And so at that moment, I said, that's the answer. They had to change the word into marijuana to make it illegal, we're going to change the word back to hemp. And uh, and so I started the Business Alliance for Commerce in Hemp, and I took the position right away, People, sh- it should be commercial. People should make money off of marijuana, because I knew people were making money off selling me marijuana, so I knew it was happening. So I said, do we need to bring that above board? And so uh, I started the Business Alliance for Commerce in Hemp, the Family Council on Drug Awareness, and then a group called the American Hemp Council, where we had these meetings. Uh, and then I edited a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrer, designed and edited in collaborated in writing it, and uh, and then we uh, went to Europe and worked on the Hash Museum. And to tell you the truth, the interesting spin here, uh, Judge Gray, is that while we were in Europe, only I only remember two pieces of marijuana news that came to us, and the one was that Richard Lee opened a store called Legal Marijuana, the hemp store, in uh, uh, Houston, was it, Mickey, or Austin, Texas? Yeah, Houston. Uh, in Houston, Texas, and that made the international news we read about in the Spanish newspaper. And so we said, well, there's a guy you can work with, and he certainly did turn out to be one. And the other thing was uh, we heard about there was a federal judge <laughs> in Southern California who had, come, had broken against a drug war. So you were one of the two news items that made it to us living in uh, Spain while I was writing my book, because we were in a very remote part of Spain. I mean, you know, we were up in an area with no phones and stuff like that mostly. 
So uh, uh, anyway, wow. so then we came back to the U.S., formed the Hemp Industries Association, worked on the uh, Proposition 215, and I, there's a lot of other stuff we can talk about from there on. But I, I noticed in, in one of the things that you said was that in 1992, you said we would have a fundamentally different drug policy by 2000. And, uh, and boy, you know, was I, I wrong. You know, I said, yeah, what I said was in five years we would have hemp growing somewhere in North America and have an unstoppable force for legalization in the country. Well, um, actually, Canada, they, were growing, they started doing research crops in Canada that year. So I kind of made my goal, but I realized you've got to watch. What you, I, didn't say, I should have said in the United States, but I just said <laughs> in North America. <laughs> well, well, well so, so. You, you both covered a great deal here, but let's go back to 1937 when they called this the Marijuana Tax Act. Had they called it the Hemp Tax Act, it wouldn't have gotten anywhere. But they coined a new word, and then they labeled it with those Mexicans. I mean, they made it racist, and that, oh, Mexicans are going to get high on marijuana, and they're going to corrupt white women, was basically the reason behind that. And I've, I've looked also at the congressional record with regard to this, Chris. It's very short, and one of them called it a narcotic. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. But, uh, my goodness, if, if we have people smoking marijuana, mostly those Mexicans, and harming our women, uh, let's, let's, let's make this. But it was never illegal. As you know, they put a tax on it. So if you were to sell me marijuana, uh, you charge sell me $10 worth of marijuana, you'd charge me $15 in taxes and have to fill out some cumbersome forms. Then if you didn't do that, you'd be prosecuted for a tax violation. It was only illegal in the Controlled Substances Act, basically with Richard Nixon in the early 1970s. So, so that's just, it's laden. You, you, you've probably seen my book, uh, Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, a judicial uh, right, indictment yeah. of or on drugs. So it's the longest book title I think I've ever heard. But uh, we go through all of these things. And I've met some of the truly best people that I've ever met in my life that uh, as a result of my involvement in this drug policy reform movement. And I'm talking to two of them somewhat publicly right now. Right. And I, we feel the same towards you. And also, you know, uh, Jack Cole, because um, you you're a part of LEAP, right? Law Enforcement yes. Action Project still, still okay. Formerly it used law to be law enforcement against prohibition. Now it's law enforcement action partnership. But Speaking I, I think remember Jack Cole, one of the founders of that group, telling a story about how he had been involved with the sting operation and before it was done, and 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 they had the raid come in and and take down this family that he had been like living with, not living with, but become very close with in the course of infiltrating the, the organization. Uh, and then when he saw the behavior of the cops, he said that the people they were arresting were nicer than the people who came in to arrest them. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you have you know, both, been involved, the, both been involved in, our, in, in marijuana education. Uh, uh, so tell us, I've never smoked marijuana. Uh, maybe I will sometime, particularly if I feel CBD oil, which we'll talk about as well. But but uh, what is the experience of smoking marijuana, Chris or Mickey? Why do you do it? Well, it's a pretty subtle experience, actually. You know, uh, the first time people smoke marijuana, they often don't even notice any difference at all. Uh, and then maybe the third or fourth time for a lot of people, but, you know, depending on for each person, of course, that it's, it's a very subtle change. It's really kind of a change of perception, uh, meaning that, like, it, you don't hallucinate or see things different, looking different, but you look at things in a different way. 
So, uh, like, for example, for, for me, I, my first time that I experienced cannabis, I felt a profoundly religious experience from it. Uh, you know, a connection to the, the – I, I felt more connected to the planet and to the – I got the air going in and out of my lungs. I was feeling it, and, and I was, like, well, seeing these bugs in the air. I was thinking, wow, you know, these – you know, it's like the basic stuff that you see, but all of a sudden it really strikes you. Those little creatures are flying, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you know they fly. It's not like a, it's something you didn't know before, but it's just that you look at it in a very different way. It, it's also it's a sensory enhancer, so it makes uh, music sound better. It makes food uh, really pop out and taste better. You could taste it, you know, it just like this is the best thing I ever ate, kind of thing. Um, it. It uh, affects uh, sensuality and makes sex. Uh, people use it often for to enhance their sexual experience, make you focus and and be in the moment with it. It makes you feel a little bit more in touch with nature, and. Uh, I think it makes it more empathetic. Like, yeah. you know, when, you, when you're taught, I, I find one of the things that, about smoking cannabis is very difficult for me to be critical of other people because then I, while, I'm saying, while I'm looking at them, I'm also thinking, well, if I were in their shoes, what would I be thinking? Or how would I feel if someone said to me what I think I want to say to this person and so forth? So it, it gives you this sense of empathy that um, uh, I think is, is really pretty valuable. You know, uh, Senator Orrin Hatch back in the 1990s when he uh, – I think he wrote a, a preface to an anti-marijuana kind of handbook for parents, and he said, you know how you can tell that your teenagers are, are using marijuana is if they all of a sudden have a, a sense of social justice in the environment. So be careful. If they <laughs> well, you care certainly about can't have that. Justice, that could be a sign. <laughs> My goodness. Uh-huh. That would be a terrible so, thing to have happen. I think it. I think it does, but I think that's actually true. I think it does make you uh, a little bit more sensitive to that. You know, the way that the culture around cannabis has has uh, come about is that we often use it and, and share it with each other and, and stand around in a circle, and it could bring you in with people of different backgrounds and. Uh, it helps you find a commonality. It, it bonds you more, I think, with, with other people. It's also really calming and relaxing. Uh, in fact, during the 1970s, I had some friends who were like anarchists, and they wanted, you know, they were like, you know, we have to rise up and have this revolution. And they were all against marijuana because they said the people who smoke marijuana, they would rather play guitar, you know, talk about changing the world, plant a garden, and they wanted to be, they want people mad. And so uh, a lot of the, the more radical people I knew were not in favor of marijuana because they think it, uh, it mellows people out. And in fact, I can tell you for a fact, uh, uh, Judge Gray, that a lot of times if I'm in a really angry mood about something, one or two puffs of marijuana puts it on perspective for me again. It's probably uh, saved a lot of computers. <laughs> At our house alone. <laughs> so, so there are definite benefits, and, and I, I'm going to ask you what potential harms are with regard to using cannabis or marijuana, but it's my understanding, and I've quoted this a lot, that no one, to anyone's knowledge, has ever died from an overdose of marijuana. Do you subscribe to that as well? It's still true. Yeah, there's not, not a single uh, marijuana toxicity overdose. So what are what are some of the harms, Mickey, of, of marijuana? There, anything has some harms and some benefits. Uh, you know, I, I haven't eaten the donuts for a long time. They taste good, but they, they have make you fat, uh, and I don't need that. But what are some of the what are the potential harms of marijuana, Mickey, from your standpoint? 
Well, you know, it, it all depends on set and setting and the person. I mean, it's not for everybody, that's for sure. Some people don't like it. Some people, it, it makes them a little more paranoid or they they can't handle if it, if it makes them more introspective and they or they get self-conscious and then they get like, oh, no, you know, it can make you focus. Since cannabis does make some people focus on on different things, it can make you focus on negative things as well. So um, for some people, it, it has more of that kind of reaction of a, of a paranoia, or if they have too much, usually it's, it's with a novice, or sometimes when you're eating it, there's a, if you eat it, you can't control the dose as much, although nowadays with the regulated market, they do uh, control how much the maximum dose can be on a, on a single dose, and that would be 10 milligrams. And for most people, they can handle it and don't get that paranoid. But some people, if you have, like, too much, it can make you feel like your your heart starts beating a little fast and you feel like, oh, no, uh, am I having a heart attack? Am I dying? Something's wrong. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. But um, you... The thing you have to tell yourself if you have that, and I've had that experience too, as in a very experienced cannabis consumer. I've, uh, when I've eaten too much of it, I've had like Chris, you know, hold my hand or something. But I know that nobody's died from it, and I know that I should not uh, look at it in in a way where um, this is the reality. That let me see how I feel in the morning. And then, because I, I often, I use cannabis at night in, in an edible to sleep because it really helps you, uh, if you wake up in the middle of the night, it helps you fall back to sleep. Um, mm. But... Uh, well, physically, the biggest risk is, of course, bronchitis for people who smoke it, uh, which is pretty rare, actually, you know, but people who already have a tendency or if you live in a very polluted area, then the idea of using a vaporizer or edibles is better. As Mickey mentioned, once you shift into edibles, you've got a risk of overdosing, which will not kill you, but it may make you think you're dying. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, literally, okay. people think they're dying, but like I say, it really has never happened in history. So, you know, that's one of the things you have to remind yourself when, when you're in that situation. And, uh, you know, otherwise, um, there are relatively few risks to it other than the legal penalties. You know, that's really where the big area of a problem is. Now, that being said, there's two things that I do urge caution about, uh, or three, I should say. One is that it speeds up your heartbeat, and so people with heart conditions may want to keep that in mind. There, there's no connection that has been made, but it is an issue that does exist. The second thing is pregnant women. Uh, you know, the studies seem to be show no real impact on that. But, you know, I, I just, in a, in a sense of overabundance of caution, I think that, uh, you know, that women might think about that in case they have something else that, that could be an issue. And uh, the last thing would be that we, neither one of us favors the idea of uh, adolescents or, or young children using it if they don't have a medical need. And not that there's any studies showing a problem with that, but uh, my sense uh, is that when you're a young child, you're dealing with enough stuff and coming to terms with the planet and, and and society that, uh, you know, that it's probably doesn't help to help throw an extra thing in there unless it's, you know, the children with, um, you know, autism or violent tendencies sure. or spasticity problems. I mean, there are some children who totally benefit from it, but we are, we are not in favor of people using it uh, too early in life unnecessarily. 
Chris, what's your view as to whether it aggravates conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar or things like that? Do you, do you have any information about that? Well, we've seen uh, both sides of that, to tell you the truth. And that's why my, what I would recommend is if somebody who has a psychological issue, that they should probably uh, use it in conjunction with a therapist. Uh, because, you know, we've seen a lot of people who treat their uh, schizophrenia with cannabis because it, it gives them feel more like they're attached to their body. We've seen people who have uh, used it to relieve their depression. Uh, but at the same time, we've also heard of, heard of people who've had triggered uh, negative reactions. And, and to me, the stories I've heard do seem possible. The, the real problem here, though, uh, Judge Gray, again, is that we – we know that there is some minor risk of that. Uh, well, you know, they say about schizophrenia, but you notice that marijuana use has increased massively. Schizophrenia has not gone up in society. So it's more that people okay. who are have schizophrenia are drawn towards using cannabis uh, often for self-medication. Uh, the problem that we run into is that there's such a bias against cannabis in the um, psychiatric and, and therapeutic communities there that uh, if you were to say, look, I've got these issues, I would like to try some marijuana to see if it helps me with you know, my schizophrenia, chances are if you go to somebody, they're not going to help you with it from that point of view because uh, they're going to be, you know, if you go to your psychiatrist, they're going to, most of them are going to be prejudiced against marijuana in the first place. And so, you know, sure. again, like the same way the biggest problems uh, physically are the problems are connected with being arrested and sent to prison. The biggest problem psychologically is that the medical community has not sorted out how to deal with this and has not given guidance to the people about this, uh, using it if they have other issues. Well, we go back Some to 19, 1937, are, are and we, when we, with the Marijuana Tax Act, we prohibited any form of additional research with regard to marijuana, and we're only kind of catching up now. So I think that's a crime that our government inflicted upon all of us. Uh, when we come back, we have to take a short break here, but we'll come back. I'd like to talk to you about CBD oil, because for a long time, I was saying this is going to be a positive medical revolution in our country. Since then, I've heard some things that are not quite as flattering about that, but I See if you guys have any information about it. When we come back after this, we're visiting with Mickey Norris and Chris Conrad, two stalwarts with regard to the marijuana uh, movement as well as just drug policy reform. We'll, we'll come back more with them after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. We are Americans all. 
listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray with my esteemed friends and guests, uh, Mickey Norris and Chris Conrad, both married, both really titans with regard to marijuana reform as well as uh, drug policy reform. But before we come back to them, I I insert a little intentional humor at this point of our talk. And uh, one of them is I saw a sign saying, drink coffee do dumb things more quickly and with more enthusiasm. I think that makes some sense. <laughs> and that's the obligatory chuckle from my guests when I, when I come into this. But, but you both were extremely involved with regard to a, a revolutionary proposition that passed here in California, 1996, the called Compassionate Use Act, uh, Prop 215 in California, which allowed medical marijuana to be prescribed. Uh, tell us about that experience and uh, and take a couple of bows, too, along the way. Mickey? Go ahead, Chris. Well, I, it doesn't exactly allow you to prescribe it. It allows people to recommend it. We had to go and be yeah, right. in the federal right. court to fight over yes. the fact that it did not say prescribed because that's a federally right. controlled uh, word. But basically, Prop 215, uh, we were working on these comprehensive initiatives with Jack Harris called the California Hemp Initiative. And so when Prop 215 first came out as a concept, uh, I was not as favorable about it as I could have been. But uh, what we did is... Because we, as activists, one of the things that we believe is that the movement comes from uh, the people, and that our job as leaders of the movement was to help to shepherd it forward. And so we found that there was a huge support for doing a medical-only initiative around the state amongst activists. So we, we immediately uh, shifted priorities over, started working on that, and uh, got in, intimately involved with the entire process and became coordinators for the uh, signature drive here in California. Um, as soon as I read it, I saw that there were some serious, serious problems problems with the way it was written in terms of uh, vagueness. Uh, and so um, what? Uh, I, maybe I'll let Mickey talk more about that, but what that ended up with is the, the very vagueness, which I did not like, ended up with me becoming a marijuana expert witness in the courts around California. Uh, and we, we can talk about it a little bit more, but Mickey, I'll, I'll let you talk more about 215 before I... Well, the thing about 215, yeah, it, it, it changed the world. I mean, it brought... It, gave uh, credibility to to the issue of medical marijuana. We knew we had to take the, the patients off of the battlefield, uh, out of the crossfire. While they're dealing with their illness, they don't have, they shouldn't be having have to worry about getting arrested for treating their their uh, medical problems. But it, it was pretty, um, it made it so that, that people could grow their own and that a, a caregiver could could grow it for them. With the doctor's recommendation. Yeah, with approval. the doctor's recommendation. But it was a pretty open uh, it, for any condition that a doctor feels that would be helpful to you, that would benefit you. So uh, it opened it up, and soon after, other states started uh, passing them. And now I believe there's, what, 33 states that have uh, legal yes. medical marijuana and uh, 11 states or places that have uh, adult use now. So it opened up the world. It, it pretty much changed the world. But, uh, and uh, another interesting thing about it to me, Judge Gray, was the fact that uh, with the hemp movement and the um, – uh, 
medical marijuana movements in, in the early days, at least, I, I got the same reaction from uh, the upper echelons of the drug war as we got from my friends when I told them I was going to change these laws, which is that they laughed at us. They did not take us seriously. And so because they did not do that, it gave us the opportunity to do a lot of stuff that had they taken us seriously, they could have thwarted us in the early, very early on. One of them was the reestablishment of the hemp industries. There were only like three companies left in the United States producing hemp products at the time I got involved. So my first goal was to save the hemp industry. Uh, you know, in a few years, we had like 60-some companies operating in the United States, on mostly very small. But again, they were laughing at us, and we were organizing. And the same thing happened around uh, Prop 215, that uh, the drug warriors thought nobody's going to buy that. They, they said it's Failed the smell test, I think, was their joke that they made about uh, medical uh-huh. marijuana because of the smell of marijuana, of course. Uh, and so, uh, or the, and they, they also said it smelled, it failed the chuckle test. And to me, that was, uh, that was the sign that, you know, that we were really on the right tack. Uh, they did not put in resources against us that they could have. They had the four presidents press conference. But basically, yeah. uh, we were out creating a, a movement, and they were busy thinking that we were just silly uh, hippies, you know, and that, that really, strangely enough, it played to our benefit. Yeah, I guess that I, right. I just wanted to add that, that, you know, when we first got involved with this, people thought, you know, why are we involved with such a frivolous issue? But to us, it, it was an all-encompassing issue of things that, that we cared about. We cared about the environment, and hemp could deal, could uh, help save the trees and and give jobs it was, it was good for the economy because it could could create jobs and and get people uh, involved in a new industry we knew it was a freedom issue and that it was a civil liberties issue that these people that our friends good people that who use cannabis uh, were getting subjected to arrest and incarceration and all these horrible qualities treated treated like criminals and that they shouldn't be because they're good people and uh, and so it, it encompassed all these issues that that we cared about so it became uh, a, a very much a, a work of passion for us that that and very important issue it wasn't frivolous at all and then when we passed prop uh, 215 you know, it, it became legitimate, and people got to see more, and people told their stories about how cannabis helped them medically, and that was really important to to help uh, counteract all the, the the stigma and the negativity and the misinformation about cannabis oh. and how horrible it was, but it, we found that people were living with it. It was improving their lives, their quality of lives, and and uh, so it it was uh, very important to pass medical marijuana and became, after that, it seemed to become kind of a strategy for broader uh, reforms by at least showing people that uh, they don't, they shouldn't have to fear cannabis anymore because it had all these great benefits, well, and prop, uh, that was prop important that people tell their stories Prop 215 that. was a watershed. It was a historic, thing, historic event, and uh, yeah. I, I still remember I was running for U.S. Senate in 2004, found myself in Marin County in, near San Francisco at a medical marijuana dispensary clinic, and went up arbitrarily to some young man waiting in line for his medicine. It's introduced myself and asked him what his story was. He said, well, Judge, I was in a very serious motorcycle accident 
about nine months ago, and uh, I injured my back severely such that I would have something on the order of seven seizures a day, brain seizures a day. But and my, my doctor had me on so many opioids that I could barely function. I was in a cloud. So a friend of mine got me involved with medical marijuana about three or four months ago. Now I've weaned myself off all of the narcotics. I live a pretty much normal life and maybe get one or two brain seizures a week. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness. And that was the CBD oil I expected. But, but I've heard some more negative things about CBD oil recently. Uh, tell me briefly what, what your views are with regard to the medical properties of marijuana, be it CBD oil or otherwise, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Well, I think that the, the CB, I actually, uh, one of my books, uh, Hemp for Health, I got into a lot of issues with because I was with the Hemp Industries Association and I wrote my book that there's this other medicines besides THC and cannabis that included CBD, which can be t- taken from industrial hemp and so forth. And so uh, the by then, we had created enough of a hemp industry on this premise that hemp is not a drug that people said, don't talk about that. You know, it, you, you're, uh, they were already upset the fact I was a legalizer and a medical marijuana guy and a hemp guy all at the same time, which they didn't think you should be able to be uh, by that point. And so we um, – you know, so I, I got into it right from the beginning, and with the studies that I saw, it looked, uh, it looked up fairly promising. I think that, again, a lot of the problem we have right now is that just the dearth of studies, that we have a lot of people talking about the benefits of it uh, and ascribing it. But as far as I know, most of the medical benefits of CBD are also applicable to THC. Uh, the main reason mm. that CBD is so popular has to do with the fact that it does not have the psychotropic effect, so people don't get high from it. Uh, that also then came, comes back to bite us because that means that if you – Use a uh, THC product, you can tell how effective it is or how strong it is by the psychotropic effect. But when it comes to CBD, you don't feel it. And so uh, there's a lot of people out there saying uh, assigning value to it for things that we don't have scientific data for. That doesn't mean it's not true. That just means that the research hasn't been done. Uh, But also we have people selling stuff, but we don't really know if there's CBD in it or not. And so they did one study early on, and they found out that most of the products that claimed to be CBD did not have CBD in them or had much less than it was supposed to. And then they did another study later on. They found just the opposite, that most of the – they had more CBD than it was supposed to be, which I didn't think was so bad. But then uh, I was talking to some doctors, and they said, just makes it – how does the doctor know how to control doses of other substances if they don't even know how much CBD there is, let alone whether it works or not? So to some extent, it confuses physicians. Uh, But other than that, you know, there's no – it's not addictive. It doesn't have uh, withdrawal symptoms or anything like that. So, you know, it it won't hurt you per se, but as far as how valuable and useful it is to people, some people it's like a miracle drug. Some people it barely affects them at all. Uh, But my main concern really is more along the uh, marketing aspect of it. But uh, if I could jump in, uh, the the reason why people use it is often for anti-anxiety, and that's why it's good to have some some uh, CBD in the in the cannabis that that you're smoking as well that has THC because it can mitigate some of the if it, if it does make you anxious because it has anti-anxiety properties it helps people sleep people are using it now with their their children for epilepsy and it's yes. also being found to be, have a lot of anti-inflammatory properties yes. so yes. it's good for pain control and, and people, yes. you know, who are dealing with lots of inflammation in their body that's causing them problems. Mickey, and you and I, again, uh, it, it is, does seem to have a lot of medical benefits and so forth. Uh, it's just 
in my opinion, the question is, how do we know what the dosages are? So as, as it gets more uh, popularized, I think that we're there's probably more quality controls than there used to be. Um, but the, the other thing I would say the problem with CBD for me is, is, unfortunately, is that so many farmers who should be making hemp for making houses because it's fire-resistant and earthquake-resistant and building-resistant and insect-resistant and uh, insulative and low energy costs and so forth to produce it are instead going – uh, cannabis for CBD because they think that's where the money is, and that everybody growing all the CBD all of a sudden has reduced the co- value of the CBD, uh, or at least its selling price, should I say? And so now these farmers are running into problems because they they went off with this idea that there was a shortcut to getting rich by going with CBD. Uh, when I think the real value of hemp is going to be when we save our state economy, when we save our national economy, when we recreate these jobs uh, from making hemp houses and hemp paper and hemp plastics and hemp foods and, and hemp, uh, uh, other products, textiles and ropes and so forth. Uh, and, and I think that right now that's all being diverted by everyone trying to get into CBD. And what I'm afraid is, is that if they don't make money on CBD, that they're going to abandon hemp instead of redirecting uh, that to where it has a, a long-term potential for real economic power. Well, they, that'll, that'll never happen because hemp is such a valuable industrial crop. And I, I put even in my book that you can get four times the amount of, of uh, parchment from an acre of hemp as you can an acre of trees and it takes one season to grow the hemp and 18 years to grow the trees or something so it's unfair competition hemp will always be there but mickey let me before we move on you say that you use marijuana for sleeping do you think yourself it's the thc that helps you sleep or the cbd combination what's your thought if you if you have any well mostly i'm uh Mostly, I, I make my own edibles, so I use it. I use it with THC. So I don't have a lot of experience just with CBD, but I know people who do use CBD for sleeping, and it, it seems to be very helpful. So I um, can't comment uh, per, from personal okay. experience that much. However, I, I do know a lot of people who swear by it that it, it just helps them. But the THC does help me sleep as, as well. Good. You know, so, I, I uh, tell people that, and this is my, my politics, my philosophy, but the government has as much right to control what I as an adult put into my body as does what I put into my mind. It's just none of their business. Of course, if I drive a motor vehicle uh, under the influence of marijuana or alcohol or whatever, that's different because now I'm putting your safety at risk. But I, I want to thank you both publicly a big time for humanizing the war on the so-called war on drugs, uh, particularly your book Shattered Lives. But uh, tell us, tell us a few examples from your book Shattered Lives as to how the the war on drugs, drug prohibition, has wrongfully harmed so many people in our world. Well, I first. Uh wanted to do this project. It it began as a photo exhibit for the 50th anniversary of the United Nations when we wanted to uh, show that the U.S. has some uh, human rights problems. That uh, It it started as a photo exhibit called Human Rights in the Drug War, and uh, when we found out how many people were being arrested and incarcerated for long periods of time on mandatory minimums and conspiracy laws, statutes, statutes and all that. It uh, and made the U.S. and has made the U.S. the number one incarcerator in the world. It, you know, it, it struck me, first of all, by uh, learning how families were being impacted by this. Not only that, that we were 
in violation of the many articles of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, including cruel and unusual punishments and and protections of the family and people being able to use their own medicine and things and a violation of religious rights and things like that. But um, I first got uh, passionate about this when I saw this photo of this woman who had just been sentenced to 12 years and her husband 29 years as first-time mar- nonviolent marijuana offenders. And uh, it, it was a photo of their their children who were left behind as their parents were were sent to prison, and they were separated into four different homes because nobody could take care of all, all four children. It was a big, you know, responsibility and, and expense for other people to 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 deal with. So I saw it as our government was orphaning children, breaking up families, using the most harmful methods of of uh, of. of of dealing with with the the drug issue itself, that uh, we ended up showing photos of a good hundred people set just sentenced to to uh, five, ten, twenty year life sentences for nonviolent drug offenses, and we just thought that was just so wrong. So we had uh, you know women. We also found out that many women very low-level offenders were being sentenced to some of the longest sentences because they were not uh, giving up information on, for example, their boyfriends or their husbands. Uh, they weren't giving that, they weren't cooperating and snitching on their loved ones, so they had no benefit of uh, substantial assistance, which would give them a reduction in their sentences. So, for example, the woman on the cover of the book, um, Amy Pova, her name was Pova before, but uh, she was sentenced to 24 years as a first-time nonviolent uh, offender, drug offender. It wasn't marijuana. It was, it was for ecstasy. Her husband was considered a kingpin, and they were estranged, and he was uh, manufacturing and exporting it. it into uh, Germany, and he was arrested in Germany, and they were estranged at the time, and he called her and asked her to move around some money uh, so that he can make a defense for himself, and because she got, uh, she became a part of the conspiracy at that point, and because uh, she was sheltered from his, what he was doing at the time, and they weren't together, and uh since he was arrested in Germany, he he got I think four years, mm. and was released. And she was she was prosecuted in Texas, in Waco, Texas, and because she didn't cooperate, and 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 you don't need with conspiracy laws, you don't need any drugs or money or actual physical evidence against you to convict you. It could be the the word of somebody else, and and other people were were trying to. Uh, get out of the, their long sentences by pointing fingers, and they nobody uh, stood up for Amy, and she got 24 years as a you know for her involvement of actually not being involved, but afterwards helping him move a little bit of money around. She ended up getting uh, clemency from uh, President Clinton before he left office, so that was good. But she did have to serve nine years, and her right. husband only served. 
I don't even know if he served all four years. I think he got out before that. And uh, that's just one example. Uh, the, the other guy on the cover of the book, uh, Will Foster, was somebody who was sentenced in, in Oklahoma. He was growing medical marijuana for his arthritis, and I think he only had like 60 plants and Actually, uh, he was sentenced to 93 years, and he, since it was a state offense, fortunately, it wasn't a, a mandatory minimum, so he ended up serving, you know, several years before getting out, but it, it was hellish for him to, first of all, be in prison when you have, you know, severe arthritis, and then to... Uh, come out and then uh, be in California, move to California, that they kept wanting him back in Oklahoma. And, you know, it was a back-and-forth thing for him. It was horrible. They, they, these stories of people with very minimal involvement uh, got uh, mostly got the, the longest sentence, a lot of, a lot of women. The, the project kind of started with our partner, Virginia Resner, who was the... Uh, California representative for families against mandatory minimums, and she had started a a women's project to to highlight a lot of these stories of people who gave a, a telephone Julie number, Stewart. somebody who called their house, wanting to connect with her boyfriend on an LSD deal, and she uh, she gave the message or something to her to her boyfriend, and because she then that rounded her up as part of the conspiracy. So she ended up serving uh, 10 years in prison for that, and her boyfriend who cooperated, who was actually involved in the thing, uh, he cooperated and he got very little time. So well, Mickey, there's all you, these stories like you bring that. These and, things, and, and you bring these things up, who, and it's just, it tears your heart out because I was a part yeah. of the system. The, the women, yeah, the girlfriends, the wives would only know the their boyfriend or their husband, and the police already knew about them, so they didn't have anything to sell. And so the boyfriends, you know, they'd have these other connections and they'd work to, to reduce their sentence. So it was frequently, just like you're saying, it would be the women mm -hmm. who just were tangentially involved at best that were serving the longest periods of time. And just thank you mm -hmm. for, for bringing that out. It's just, just amazing. We're, we're not going to have John, lots of time left in our hour here. You were living in Amsterdam for a while. Uh, what is what is the approach in to cannabis in place like Amsterdam as opposed to the United States back then? What has been the respective results? You know, we lived in, in Amsterdam in 1993 when we were working on the Hash Marijuana and Hemp Museum, uh, curating and help to, helping to design it. So we got to, to live in a place where uh, they had a coffee shop system where cannabis was tolerated and, in fact, all drug use was treated as a public health issue. So we saw that, that people were not being arrested and they, they didn't have a big incarceration problem there. And we saw people treated uh, like everybody else, actually, because they, they had a policy of tolerance where you can go and buy cannabis in a, in a beautiful coffee shop and they're all different kinds and and where you can sit in with a cappuccino and, and roll a joint and talk with your friends and watch the police walk on by. And it was a beautiful model to to me. Now the problem is with them, they they've kept their policy as zero tolerance. They haven't gotten the the I mean not zero, not zero tolerance, tolerance. <laughs> that of a tolerance policy. 
So they have not really, they've regulated the sales to a certain degree and only allow people to have a certain amount uh, in their in a certain amount of products in their store, but they have not regulated what they call the backdoor, which is the the production of the cannabis. So they're still vulnerable. People who are growing it and selling it are still vulnerable. It's kind of a crazy system, and they've they've had some kind of, uh, over the years, uh, they've kind of rolled some things back, you know, some places uh, that, you know, they had a lot of coffee shops, and then they stopped renewing some of the licenses as they closed. So, so it was getting less and less. But they, and then they had people uh, coming in from other countries in Europe who wanted to buy it as as, as Canada's tourists. And you know, and then there were attempts to try to prevent that in some of the border towns to. Um, to limit that kind of tourism, but it, 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 it's, it doesn't seem to be a great model anymore. One of the things that we find with cannabis over and over again is that, like you say, so what's the problems with cannabis? Well, the problems are people who get arrested with it. What are the health problems? We don't know enough about it. And when it comes to Holland, well, what their problem was is that uh, with the cannabis policy is that they had this cannabis policy. It was working great, and then they formed the, United, the European Union, uh, the EU, and in order to get into the EU, then they had to start peddling back on their marijuana policies and so forth and drug policies in order to comply further with the, the EU on, in that regard. No. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't really that the marijuana issue wasn't the, the problem. The problem was that the European Union was putting pressure on it. Then they started moving forward with that again, and now marijuana in Holland is a victim of uh, the environment because parts of Amsterdam are starting to sink again because of oh. global warming, rising seas, etc., uh, and the, the fact that they've the pilings that are holding up the city are like uh, 500 years old or something. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, look, I, I've and got to so, thank you both. Uh, We've run out of time. Access to but I, I, just, not because I, th- I, thank, uh, I thank you both for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been hearing from two of the titans of the drug reform policy world, uh, Mickey Norris and Chris Conrad, really highly regarded for obvious and good reasons. Thank you both for what you're doing. Thanks for what you're continuing to do. And we will celebrate you completely here on All Rise. You can call this up anytime on demand, but uh, you've heard really good pieces of wisdom from really good people. Life is complicated. That's right. Life is certainly interesting. That's right as well. But life is good. So tune in next week. We'll have some more interesting conversations. Maybe not as good as with Mickey Norris and Chris Conrad because they're pretty tops. But thanks for being with us both. (laughs) And we'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much. And for all your great work, Judge Gray, you've been terrific. And let's end this drug war. Already, it's time. Truly so. Truly so. You heard it here second. Thanks again. Life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds that help us control.